As we get started, uh, we're you know continuing to preach through the book of Colossians. But before we go to uh, the verses we're going to cover this morning, who by a show of hands has used uh, Ancestry.com to do some like family tree detective work, uh, trying to figure out your family line? Any anyone uh, do do this at all? I'm kind of scrolling through to see. Uh, Okay, I see a couple of hands. All right, okay. Um, I, I haven't done it, but it does seem kind of fun and interesting, right, to trace your family tree backwards and see where you came from and essentially who all you are related to do, uh, who all you are related to. And uh, even now you can do DNA testing uh, if you trust them with your DNA. Uh, Britt has some uh, concerns about that. You can talk with her. Uh, but if you trust them with your DNA, you can even do that. But on Ancestry.com's homepage, this is their catchphrase, okay? I'm going to try to be fancy here again and pull up their catchphrase. So this is what you see on their website. It says, every family has a story, find yours. Every family has a story, find yours. And I, and I think these sites are getting more and more popular because isn't that what everyone is looking for? They're looking for uh, their family. They're looking for their story. They're looking to find kind of what story they are a part of so that they can figure out the role that they play in it. And so imagine what it would be like to discover that there was someone famous in your family tree. That would be pretty exciting. And I think a lot of people go into it kind of hoping that they might discover like uh, some, someone really famous or important in their family line. So I read an article, uh, I think it was a blog on, on the, the website, and it said it was about this average guy from Boston. Okay, at quote unquote average. I didn't call him average. The article called him average. Uh, but if he is from Boston, it, we could probably say he was an average guy. And he did the whole Ancestry.com thing. And he found that he had seven famous world changing people in his family tree. Okay, so for example, uh, he found out that his sixth cousin twice removed was Tennessee Williams. Okay, now I didn't really know who Tennessee Williams was, but I guess he was a famous writer and considered one of the best playwrights in the 20th century. And uh, I wanted to include his picture because I think uh, Seth's mustache was way better than his even. Okay, but not only did this guy find out he was related to Tennessee Williams, uh, but he also found out that his, uh, let's see, it was his eighth cousin, twice removed, was Alan Shepard, who was the first American in space, and he was the fifth man to walk on the moon. But not only that, this guy then discovered that his 11th cousin, twice removed, was Amelia Earhart, the first woman to fly a plane across the Atlantic. And so uh, this guy, right, all of a sudden, he finds himself weaved into the story of people who have done some pretty impressive and pretty important things. You can imagine he probably felt a little bit more kind of importance and maybe some significance and probably even a bit more purpose as he discovered the story of his family. Now think about just even for yourself, like what would it, how would you feel if you discovered that Abraham Lincoln or someone like that was in your family tree? I think if I found out that Abraham Lincoln was in my family tree, number one, I'd probably want to learn more about him. Uh, I'd probably go, right, read books and study like, okay, who, who is this guy, right? What all, I want to know all the details of his life. 
but then I would probably want to be about some of the things that he was about, right? I would want to play my part in the story that my family members had started. And so take that idea of this kind of family and this story and, and just keep that in the back of your head. And I'm going to kind of catch us up on where we're at in the book of Colossians. Because last week we looked at the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus in creation, right? We said that Jesus is first, meaning he is supreme. He is over all creation. We also said that Jesus is enough, meaning he is sufficient to sustain life and hold all things together. We then said that all is for him, meaning his glory is our purpose and his presence is our destination. And now this morning, we're going to keep going with this theme of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus, but Paul is now going to pivot in his writing to the Colossians. He's going to pivot from Jesus being supreme and sufficient in creation to now Jesus being supreme and sufficient in redemption. Or you could say it this way, that Jesus is supreme and sufficient in creation, and he is supreme and sufficient in the new creation. Because here, here's the truth that should really just rock your world this morning. It should shake things up for you this morning. As I have been studying and tracking your family tree, now don't ask how I got your DNA, right? But, but as I've been studying our family tree, and for those who have put their faith in Jesus, as I've been studying this, right, people who have put their faith in Jesus, they now have someone very significant and important in their family tree. They have essentially cosmic royalty, a world changer in their family line. Because you see, and I'll pull up this slide here, because Jesus has begun a new family with a new story that you are a part of, okay? Jesus has begun a new family with a new story that you are a part of. And if you see that and if you believe that today, that can most certainly change your life. I mean, if you really believe that, if you really believe that, wouldn't that provoke a desire in you to, to be with Jesus, right? To spend time with him, to learn everything about him that you could, and to then be about what he was about. Instead of you maybe trying to write him into your story, which I think is what a lot of us as Christians tend to want to do, what if he's written you into his? What if he's written you into his? Wouldn't that fill you with a sense of significance and a sense of purpose to play the part in his story that he has written for you? So let's, let's look, let's learn about this new family and this new story that we are a part of, okay? So look with me at Colossians 1, verse 18. Colossians 1, verse 18. Paul writes, he says, And he, speaking of Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church, the called out ones. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, first notice how Paul describes this new family. He describes it as a body, okay, a body. And Jesus has created this new family of those that have been called out by God, also known as the church, and Paul describes it as a body. I don't even need to make an illustration here. Paul is doing it for us, right? He's saying the church is like a body, and Jesus is the head of that body. 
Okay, Paul's not trying to sh- Paul's not trying to say that Jesus is just like the head of a household or the head of some organization, but he is the head of a living organism, and Jesus functions like our heads function on our body. Which I don't know about you, but the head I think we would all agree is a pretty important part of the body. Uh, if your body was quarantined, right, your head would be an essential worker. It's, uh, it's important, okay? So, so let's think through this illustration, right? What does this new family look like if Jesus is described as the head, okay? Well, uh, so let's, let's think about what the head does for the body, okay? Number one, this means that Jesus is the governing authority of the body. Right, Your brain tells your body what to do. It controls and it governs how the rest of the body moves and works. And in the same way, right, Jesus is the ultimate governing authority of this new family. It's not ultimately your pastor. It's not ultimately the public, like a popular public opinion. Uh, it's not the new book that just came out that has ultimate governing authority. It's not the Pope, right? It's only Jesus. Only Jesus is the head of this new family. All right? Well, what else does it look like to be, for Jesus to be the head of the body? Number two, the head gives life to the body. Without the head, there is no life. I mean, you can, you can cut the head off of a chicken, right? And it will run and move for a little bit, but eventually it dies without the head. And you guys can do this experiment at the Canfield's house. You have my permission to test that out. But Jesus is not only is the, the governing authority, but he's the, he's the life source, right? If we cut ourselves off from the source of life, then we are not living. In fact, we are dying. And so if you are not in Christ, if you are not trusting in Jesus for your life and salvation, you are actually not living. You are, in fact, dying. And your, your body has been telling you this, that you're dying, right? Ever since probably age 25, your body has been telling you that you are dying. You've been like a chicken running with out ahead and hey on this earth you can maybe do that for 80 or 90 years if everything goes great for you but then after that that's it but when we come to Christ that is when we stop dying and we actually start living we start living Jesus is the source of life both in this life and the life to come and it was his life death and resurrection that has guaranteed our resurrection as well, all right? It has guaranteed our resurrection as well. Look back at, at Colossians 1 verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, after going to the cross to pay the penalty for sin, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and his resurrection guarantees his family's resurrection as well right? He's, it, it, Paul said he's the firstborn from the dead, and, and that would signify that there are more resurrections to come. Amen, church? Like, that's, that is good news. So yes, Jesus is the source of life for us here and now, and we live now by being connected to him, but his resurrection has guaranteed ours in the life to come. And this is amazing, church. 
Because what this means is that this life is not all that there is. If this life was all that there is and was, then the story this of our family would be very different. But we live knowing the truth that Jesus' resurrection has guaranteed ours. And we live knowing that there is a life to come. And for those who are in Christ, who have put their faith in Christ, they will be raised to everlasting life with him. And therefore, we do not live in this life like this, is, this life is all we have. We live like we just started living. And we live today with the understanding that right now we are being prepared to dwell in the good and glorious presence of Jesus forever. That's what you're being prepared for. You're being prepared to dwell once again in the good and glorious presence of Jesus forever. Okay, so Jesus governs his family, right? And this is what it means for Jesus to be the head of the body. Jesus governs this family. He's the ultimate authority. He gives life to this family. He guarantees this resurrection of the family. And uh, look at verse 18. He's also the glory of this family. Verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, preeminent means supreme. It means first, exalted over all, treasured above everything else. So this is what we mean when we say Jesus is first. We're saying he's supreme, he's preeminent, he's over all. Think about this. When someone asks you to send them a picture of yourself, uh, maybe for uh, a job or a directory or like a, an ID badge at your work. Uh, like what, what picture do you send of yourself, right? You send, you send, a, you send a headshot, right? Specifically your, your face. It would be uh, like you don't send them a picture of your hand or your foot or the back of your neck. Uh, that would be really weird if you did that. But no, it's, it's your face. It's your head that you put out there to the world. And the same is true of this new family that Jesus has begun. When the world asks us for a picture of ourselves or to identify ourselves, we should put Jesus front and center, right? It is his life, death, and resurrection that we glory in and we exalt and where we find our identity. Churches start getting really dysfunctional when they start exalting and treasuring anything or anyone else other than Jesus. He is this new family's authority. He is the source of its life. He guarantees its resurrection, and he is the glory of the family. And you can see I started all those with the letter G, which is what pastors do for fun uh, when they want a challenge. I at least didn't make it an acronym or anything like that, okay? But let's, let's, let's pause for a second. All right, let's pause for a second, and I want to ask you some questions to consider. Okay, first question I would ask you is, are you living or are you dying? I mean, are you in a family tree that just always ends in death, right? Are you in a family line where you look back and you say, hey, this person lived and then they died and they stayed dead? And then my great-great-grandpa, he lived and died and he stayed dead. 
Or have you, by faith in Christ, been adopted into Jesus' family, and you can look back to a point 2,000 years ago where there was a person who died but did not stay dead? And it is once you put your faith in Christ, that is when you really started living life as a part of Jesus' family. Church, are you living? Are you living? Also, another question, are you in good communication with Jesus? Are you looking to him and his written word is your ultimate authority in life? Are you looking to him to be the source of your life and the guarantee of your life to come? Is he who you are exalting in and putting forth to the world? And if you're not, you're probably not functioning as a healthy part of the body of Christ. And we as a church also need to ask, are we as a church keeping and recognizing Jesus as the head? Like, may we always, may he always be the head of our church. All right, well, let me remind you kind of that Ancestry.com slogan again, right? Every family has a story. We've learned so far that Jesus has begun a new family with a new story. But what's this story all about? All right, what's this story all about? Look back at, uh, sorry, look back at Colossians. Colossians 1 verse 19. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, Paul here is once again affirming the deity of Christ, right? That Jesus was fully God and fully man. And through Jesus and through his new family, he's now written a new story, and it is a story of reconciliation, right? I love that, that Justin uh, even brought that up as well, right? It's, we now have this ministry of reconciliation. It's a story of reconciliation. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is reconciling all things to himself. And he can accomplish this because Jesus has made peace by the blood of his cross. And so here is the story that the new family of Jesus gets to be a part of. We get to be peacemakers. We get to be peacemakers, okay? Uh, we get to help people experience peace with God. We get to help people experience peace with one another. And we get to help people experience peace with the rest of creation. But in this story of peace, we must first understand that peace was needed, okay? That peace was needed. Now, when the Bible speaks of peace, it's often in the Bible, it uses the Hebrew word shalom, okay? And shalom carries with it a much deeper significance than just a lack of conflict, which is often what we, it's often what I think of when I think of peace. I just think, oh, a lack of conflict. But biblical peace, while it does include this lack of conflict idea, it's also getting at the idea of completeness or wholeness. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when they turned from the desires of God, they broke peace with God. And by their, their disobedience, it was an act of rebellion. And since that time, humanity's relationship with God has been fractured. It's been not whole and healthy. It's been incomplete. There's now been enmity and hostility in the relationship. There's been separation. 
And ever since that point, all of humanity has been prone to rebel and hate God because, see, because of our sin, we hate the fact that he is supreme and we are not. We hate the fact that he is sufficient and we are not self-sufficient. And you see, our sin was so offensive uh, to a holy and glorious God, and it was so distorted from the original relationship that God designed, that there was no peace with God, and peace could only be made by blood being spilt by a willing and a perfect sacrifice. And when Jesus went to the cross, he took the sins of his people upon himself and he paid the price that we should have paid so that peace could once again be restored for all those who would trust in him. So that completeness and wholeness and health could once again be restored. Now, wait a minute, I'm going to make an objection and maybe you're thinking this too as you read this verse. The passage says that he reconciled to himself all things, right? So does that mean that all people will be saved? Is Paul preaching here a universal salvation for all things in heaven and on earth? And remember, when he's saying in heaven and on earth, he's talking about both the physical realm and the spiritual realm. He's talking about the visible realm and the invisible realm. And so is he preaching that, that, that everyone is going to get saved, even those who, like those who love Jesus and those who hate Jesus, uh, for angels and demons? Is this a message that all will be saved? Well, no, it's, it's not. We must interpret Scripture in light of all of Scripture. And we know that even Paul, one chapter later, is going to say this. So let me pull it up here. He's going to say in Colossians 2.15, he's going to say, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Remember the, those phrases we learned last week from, that are referring to fallen angels. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, so Paul here is not teaching that even fallen angels are all going to be saved and restored to God, right? No, Paul speaking of these fallen angels, he says that Christ has triumphed over them, right? He has put them to open shame. Therefore, this, reconcil this reconciliation peace that he's talking about, it does not equate to salvation for Jesus' enemies, but instead triumph and victory over them. Okay, so you got to understand that Paul's not teaching here universal salvation, but instead he's teaching universal restoration. And this restoration will be obtained in the physical and spiritual realm by either Jesus saving by grace through the blood he shed for his people or by his triumph and defeat of his enemies. Okay, this reconciling all things to himself is essentially Jesus bringing all his creation back under his rule, some willingly and some unwillingly, some by salvation and some by judgment. And this then achieves the cosmic restoration and shalom that Paul is getting at here. A, a wholeness, a completeness, a, a harmony with God. Things being put right back into their, their place. All things being brought under the rule of Christ. And so by Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross, he has now made a way for peace with God. 
He's removed the hostility that existed between humanity and God by his sacrifice. And now we get to be a part of this family of peacemakers that get to take part in the story of seeing peace with God spread to more and more people across the world, both in Franklin and in France. And one day, one day in the new heavens and the new earth, perfect shalom, perfect completeness, wholeness, and peace will be experienced in the presence of Christ. Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians, he said, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is the story that we are a part of. This is the story we are a part of. Because of the blood that was shed on the cross of Jesus, not only can we experience peace with God, but we can also experience peace with one another. Peace with one another. And this is good news. This is good news. Did you know that because of sin in your old family tree, you were prone to not have peace with others? Now, if you don't believe me, uh, it's probably because you haven't had any family gatherings in a while, right? So this is kind of a hard season to really get you uh, to see my point here. <laughs> but just give it, give it some time. Wait till you start having gatherings once again with friends and family. Uh, because, and then you'll believe me that peace in relationships is often not the default. Because of sin, our default is instead to quarrel with one another, right? To argue with one another, to be jealous of one another, to covet and envy one another, to use and abuse one another, to hurt one another. But then Jesus came along and he started this new family who, this, whose story was supposed to be about loving one another and forgiving one another and serving one another and making peace with one another. This is the story that we are a part of, to pursue peace with one another. Now, <clears throat> do you know, I feel like this is a, a safe place I can, I can share and be honest with you, okay? Uh, do you know that I have never perfectly loved another person? I, I haven't. I have never, I've never done that. I've never perfectly loved another person. Some of you uh, maybe find that hard to believe. I'm sure Brittany and those closest to me do not find that hard to believe, right? I have never perfectly loved another person. Now, I have expected others to love me perfectly, and I've been hurt when they haven't lived up to my expectation of them, but I have never perfectly loved someone else. But when I truly experience and know and rest in the perfect love of God that was demonstrated to me through Jesus, then the desire I have to be perfectly loved is made complete by the peace and the love that I have received from God. And that then frees me to have peace with others, to not expect from them what can only be expected from God. Not only that, but the peace of God that I have received with him, it also frees me to forgive others when they either intentionally or unintentionally hurt me because I know how much God has forgiven me. Now, it's not to say that every relationship in this life can always be perfectly restored, all right, especially if the other person is not willing to reconcile. 
But you, you can still experience peace by going to Jesus and asking him to help you remove the hostility that you have held on to towards this other person. You can still go to Jesus and ask him to help you, uh, to grant you the ability to forgive and to show grace to undeserving people. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus has a lot of experience in the department of showing grace to undeserving people. If you are struggling to do that, go to him, ask for his help, ask for him to give you the ability to do that. And so a question that I have to ask to you guys is that, is there someone right now that you are not at peace with today? Is there someone right now that you are not at peace with today? Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, he said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, there, 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 might not, there might be some relationships that you have where the other person is unwilling to make peace and they're unwilling to reconcile. But even in that case, you can experience peace. With God's empowering help, you can confess and repent of the wrong that you did in that relationship. You can offer forgiveness with the help of God and you can be healed from any hostility that you have held on to. This might take time, but it has to be pursued. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with one another. Listen, guys, this is the family business. This is what the story of our family is about, right? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This new story that you and I are a part of is one about peace with God, about peace with others, and about peace with creation. Okay, church, since, since sin entered into the world, creation has been groaning and longing for Jesus. Adam and Eve were given this creation mandate to go, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to gently subdue it and cultivate it. And yet since sin entered in, we've been prone to use and abuse creation, not to subdue it and cultivate it. And because of sin and death, animals became fearful of us and we became fearful of them. And while, yes, we can still marvel at God's creation and his glory and his power, even in thunderstorms like we experienced here last night, at times his creation can become a fearful thing and even a deadly thing to us as tornadoes destroy and earthquakes shake the foundations and viruses and cancers spread. But this is not how it will always be. Paul, when he again wrote to the Romans in Romans 8, he said, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Church, creation groans to be set free from the curse of sin. Creation groans for Jesus to return and restore all things.
Every roar of every lion and every chirp of every bird is calling out for Jesus. Every tree creaking in the wind and every stream that's flowing through a river and a forest, sorry, a stream flowing through a forest is longing for Jesus. The grazing cow in the field and the barking dog in your neighborhood is a reminder of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus in creation and in his new creation. Because listen, you can check the tag on every animal and every created thing in the universe. You check the tag and you see that they were made by Jesus. Right? They were made by Jesus and they were made for Jesus. And all things are being brought under his rule, reconciled to him, because he has made peace by the blood of his cross. And so, church, I'm, I'm winding it down here, okay? Every family has a story. And I pray that you would find yours. I I pray that God would open the eyes of your heart to see and to know and to taste and to believe the, the peace that God has provided to you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus has begun this new family with a new story that you are a part of. He is the head of his, this family, right? He is the head. He is the governing ultimate authority. He is the source of life. He is the guarantee of our resurrection. And he is the glory, the one that we put forward to the world. And this is the family that you and I are invited to be a part of. And in this new family, your story is no longer one of brokenness, hostility, or chaos. But your story is now one of peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another. And peace with all of creation. So let's let's pray.